morning, Bethel Church. See a lot of new faces this morning. Uh, either that or some of you are just getting older and changing in your appearance, and I don't recognize you, but uh, could be me. But some of you look new, and I want to say welcome. Uh, I'm glad that you're here with us. Uh, before we get into our study in Nehemiah uh, this morning, I have a, um, a really sobering announcement to make, and the majority of you, I think, probably know this, but. Uh, uh, Sergeant Brandt of Fairbanks Police Department was uh, uh, passed away this past week uh, due to complications uh, from surgery. Um, Alan Brandt was uh, shot in the line of duty a little over a week ago, and uh, boy was seemingly doing okay, uh, and then uh, surgery did not go well, and he died. Uh, Natasha, his wife, and Alan attended here years ago. Uh, they are a family of God with us. They are friends, and... Um, uh, the, Natasha has uh, four children now to raise on her own, and so I want to ask that uh, uh, we would be praying for them and that we would recognize this loss. This is a man and a family who uh, took on risk to serve and protect our community, and uh, I want to pray for them. So would you join me, please? Our Father, we grieve uh, this moment as we know um, that you grieve We know that even if Christ were here with us, he would grieve because of the ugliness of death itself. Uh, Lord, we uh, grieve for Natasha, who has lost her husband, kids who have lost their father, and for all of us, Lord, who have lost a brother in Christ and a friend. But we do not grieve as those without hope. We grieve as those who know that our brother in Christ is better off by far than we are now. I pray, Lord, for Natasha, that you would give her strength and wisdom, that you would protect her heart from anything that might be detrimental to her or to the family. I pray that you would bring friends and loved ones in the body of Christ and the community alongside to support. Uh, we pray continually for those who serve, Father, our, our police officers, our firefighters, and others in the community who um, serve us, Lord, and protect a way of life that we enjoy. Um, pray that you would protect their own hearts, that they would not lose um, courage, uh, that they would not, um, neither, Lord, that their, anger, that their anger would not boil over. Uh, protect their own hearts uh, for people and ones who do these acts, Lord. Uh, Father, we know that shalom, peace, wholeness, and goodness will not be here until you return, until your son returns. And so we do pray along with the ancient church to Maranatha. Come Lord Jesus, bring your rule and reign in this place completely and fully and keep our hearts longing for that day above all else. In the meantime, may we be faithful with the charge that you have given us to be ministers of the gospel, ambassadors for you, disciple makers who bring people to the unspeakable joy of what it means to be rightly related to the Father because of Jesus. May that joy just exude from us. May that peace be apparent. May the loving relationships between brother and sister and brother and brother and sister and sister within the family of God be evident to all that Christ has changed us. And may that be a corroborating message to our gospel. Lord, we thank you for your word that we get to come to now. 
And we pray that this would not just be an intellectual exercise, but a moment where you transform our hearts again by your revelation. May we know you more and love you more as we understand you, as you've revealed yourself to us in your word. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. If you turn in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 6, we're starting at verse 15, and we'll go through to the end of chapter 8. And the title of my message this morning is called Full Circle. And unfortunately, it is not a sermon that has at the beginning a good story of sheep hunting, as the title might indicate, Full Circle. I don't yet have a good sheep hunting story. I hope to. Um, this, this phrase, full circle, is of course an expression uh, that we use where we describe something that completes a cycle, uh, where something returns to its beginning of sorts. Uh, full circle can be used uh, even as a literary device in a good novel or uh, a plot feature in a really good film or something that we all encounter uh, in life that it can occur naturally. And it's kind of pleasant and poetic when we see it. Let me give you some examples. Imagine a ball player, a pitcher, who was cut from one team only to be picked up by a rival and then have the opportunity to come back and to pitch an important game against the team that originally cut them. Something coming full circle. Or for those literary folks, the character Jean Valjean in Victor Hugo's Les Mis. Uh, There's a couple cycles of coming full circle there, but especially I think the one that intrigues me is a man who was sort of unjustly incarcerated and became, in a sense, a criminal, was met with grace. And the grace that he was met with came full circle and was then extended uh, to others. Uh, Maybe another example sort of in real life would be for those of you who have kids, every now and then you have a moment where your kids do something really responsible and they care for you in a certain kind of way, and you're, you're sort of watching this occur, you know, like, what, what's happening here? My child is becoming a caregiver of sorts to me. And you, and you kind of have that moment wash over you where you realize, someday this is going to be the case. The kids that I have, by God's grace, brought into this world will one day be my caregiver. It makes you want to have several children to increase your odds that one of them will be responsible and care for you well. You don't want to put all your eggs in one basket, you know. Um, So I love it when a story comes full circle, whether it's a movie or a novel or a real life situation. It's kind of satisfying and poetic and beautiful. And this morning we have a picture in Nehemiah of uh, really a striking picture of Judah coming full circle. This time of discipline and correction from the Lord for uh, the, the error of their ways being Uh, destroyed, the city being destroyed of Jerusalem, taken off to Babylon for exile, there for 70 years to be released and to return home. And and the successive rebuilding of the city and their homes and the wall and the temple. And now we have this moment of truth sort of of to to say here. And And the story comes full circle. And there is a question that is here for us, which I'll get to in a minute. But as the story unfolds, it's, it's really told to us with two central figures, uh, Tobiah and Nehemiah. Uh, both of these men, I want to be clear about this, they're both real historical figures. This is a real story that really happened. This isn't fiction, of course. 
but their characters, their, their persons, who they are in the story and the way the story is told around their lives is done really kind of beautifully and artistically in such a way that their characters are almost symbolic to us to raise the right question for the reader to consider. Tobiah, is, as we've introduced him, is a man of compromise, a man of duplicity. And he reminds us of Judah's duplicitous past. He reminds us of a Judah who was steeped in idolatry, whose face was turned against the Lord, who had engaged in sin and intermarriage and any number of things. This is kind of the uh, Judah or uh, Tobiah serves kind of as a a symbol of this past life. Nehemiah serves in a sense as a symbol and as as a man of integrity. He calls to mind Judah's potential future what God wants for them, what God has called them to, a life of devotion to the Lord. Now, I want to be careful here. Uh, I'm not trying to allegorize this story. That's a rotten method of interpretation. So let me just say that at the outset. But the Bible is, is not just a written record of history, but it is told beautifully. The stories are carefully crafted and they're told with intent and structure. And the structure at times helps us to see critical issues. And I, as I look at this, I see these two characters uh, and their, their, their personal character contrasted one against the other so that it will help the reader see what is at stake here. And what is at stake is this question. Will Judah come full circle back to the Lord? To a life of integrity and purity and devotion as God desires it of them? Or will they spiral off again to a life of duplicity and compromise and sin and shame? And this is sort of the moment of truth for them. And these two figures help us to see the tension at hand. Look with me at verse 15 in chapter 6. So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. When all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. Also in those days, the nobles of Judah were sending many letters to Tobiah and replies from Tobiah kept coming to them. For many in Judah were under oath to him since he was son-in-law to Shechaniah, son of Arah, and his son, I can't say this name, Jehadahana, I can't, you know, there's just too many syllables there, uh, had married the daughter of Meshulam, son of Berechiah. Moreover, they kept reporting to me his good deeds and telling him what I said. And Tobiah sent letters to intimidate me. What a knucklehead, can we agree? Uh, Here's how I would characterize him. Tobiah continues his life of duplicity. We've introduced him before as a man of compromise, not the good kind of compromise. He bears, uh, he bears a Jewish name. That's his lineage. And yet he has aligned himself with Sanballat, an enemy uh, of Judah here, an enemy of the Lord. Uh, he has joined sort of the opposition party of the north. And he's not just an enemy, but he's pretending to be a friend. And so he is, in fact, a traitor. He, along with Sambalot, has mocked Nehemiah and the people of God for the project that they were engaging in. And his joke is even recorded for us, right? Even a fox climbing on the wall that they're building would topple over, right? Um, Alistair Begg has called him the bully's idiot. And I like that title. In fact, it made me think of a picture which I've brought for you. 
Uh, he reminds me of this guy. <laughs> LeFou, Gaston's sidekick, the bully's idiot. This is Tobiah, uh, and ex- except that it's not exactly laughable. Uh, in our passage today, we learn that his efforts to restrain the project and to oppose it aren't just because he's a mocker or a contrarian, but because he is driven by self-interest. We're told that he continually mocks and intimidates, but the reason is because he has some business contracts. These people are under oath to him, and he's leveraging. He's using his position. He's using relationships to even manipulate the situation. We're told that he's connected through marriage to the priestly family, so he has influential, uh, he, he's a man of influence, and he's exploiting it. He's manipulative. He's, he's showing one people his sort of gracious and good side, and on the other hand, he's sending intimidating letters to Nehemiah. So I would say this by way of summary. He is a smarmy, isn't that a good word? Smarmy, compromised man of duplicity who stirs the pot. You probably know somebody like this, and we won't you know, throw names around or exchange those. But what's even more unfortunate is, especially for Judah, that he is deeply embedded in the community, and they have to deal with him. He reminds us, in fact, not just of LeFou here, but he really reminds us of Judah. That is who they were. He reminds us of the Judah that the prophet Isaiah and the prophet Ezekiel and the prophet Jeremiah confronted and said, you must change your ways. You can't continue in these duplicitous, compromised uh, courses of action. Um, The duplicity of Tobiah here contrasted against Nehemiah reminded me of a proverb. It's Proverbs 11.3, which says this, the integrity of the upright guides them, but the unfaithful are destroyed by their duplicity. The integrity of the upright guides them, but the unfaithful are destroyed by their duplicity. And so enter Nehemiah and his character and what we see in him. Nehemiah models for us a life of integrity. Look at chapter 7, verse 1 with me. After the wall had been rebuilt and I had set the doors in place, the gatekeepers, the musicians, and the Levites were appointed. I put in charge of Jerusalem my brother Hanani, along with Hananiah, the commander of the citadel, because he was a man of integrity and feared God more than most people do. Isn't that a great line? You could put that one on my tombstone for me if, if it bears itself out in life. I said to them, the gates of Jerusalem are not to be opened until the sun is hot. While the gatekeepers are still on duty, have them shut the doors and bar them. Also appoint residents of Jerusalem as guards, some at their posts and some near their own houses. Now the city was large and spacious, but there were few people in it, and the houses had not yet been built, rebuilt. So my God put in, into my heart to assemble the nobles, the officials, and the common people for, for registration by families. I found the genealogical record of those who had been the first to return. This is what I found written there, and I will not read all the names to you just now. Um, What we find in Nehemiah here in this instance, we see his excellent work of integrity, and we see it contrasted against really the shadowy backdrop of Tobiah and his duplicity. The brightness of Nehemiah's character standing out against the darkness of Tobiah's. 
We see here that the swift completion of the wall, only 52 days. This was a testament not only to the skill of Nehemiah and his good management and all that he had going for him here, but it was primarily a testament to the fact that the hand of the Lord was upon him. And that's not just the narrator's note here, but in fact, that's, that is the perception of the people of God as they observed, excuse me, not the people of God, the people in the surrounding communities, what they observed about him. It says here uh, in verse 15, the wall was completed on the 25th day and into 16 when all our enemies heard about this, the nations were afraid. They lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. The general public saw the hand of the Lord upon Nehemiah. Now I want to talk about um, this word integrity because I think probably when we hear it, most of us have too small a sense of it or too small of a grasp of it. It's only used once in this passage here. In fact, it's not even used of Nehemiah himself. It's used explicitly of Hananiah, one of his appointees. Um, And in fact, it's only used that time in the entire book. But when we look at the life of the man himself, we see that he puts on display for us integrity. His whole life is characterized by it. Uh, He fleshes it out for us. And I'm going to highlight that for you in just a second. But I want to make sure that we we have a good grasp of the word because I think more often than not, when we use the word integrity, we're simply thinking of personal purity. We're thinking of something about this big. And while that's certainly part of it and it's true of it, that's too narrow. The word integrity is bigger and deeper and broader than that. And as we find in the word of God, integrity starts with the fear of the Lord. As we find right here in this particular passage, Hananiah was a man of integrity. Why? Because he feared the Lord more than most men. Last week, we looked at the unjust lending practices within Judah, countrymen against countrymen. And they were called out by Nehemiah. And the question that he asked them was, shouldn't you walk in the fear of the Lord. Psalm 68, 8 says something, or excuse me, 16, 8 says something similar. It says, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. See, integrity means more than just a life of purity. It means that all of one's life is integrated. Integrated around the fear of the Lord. We set the Lord first and foremost before us. And because that is the place that our life orbits around, integrity flows out of that. If I can say it this way, if you aim for integrity, you will miss it. You have to aim for the fear of the Lord. Integrity will be a byproduct of it. I think there's a lot of people who simply want to look good or want to look the part They want the title of integrity upon them. And as as I've been thinking about it this week, I think this point is true. A person who lives for the fear of man will simply learn how to look the part. But a person who fears the Lord, who sets the Lord as always before them, will learn to be that part. They will learn to order their lives accordingly. Um, Integrity is a byproduct of one who fears the Lord. And so while it is explicitly used to describe Hananiah, the point I'm making is 
it saturates the life of Nehemiah throughout the whole of the story. And I want to remind you of some of these. So here, I'm going to ask you just to let your imagination go. And I'm going to recall events throughout the book that we've already looked at. And I want you just to play the movie score in your head. Imagine the unfoldings that we've already covered here. Um, Nehemiah was in the service to King Artaxerxes when the word came from his brother Hanani about the disrepair of the city. And when he heard that the walls were broken down, as a man, Nehemiah, as a man who feared the Lord, first and foremost, when he heard about the condition of the walls and the disrepute it was for the Lord, he was grieved about it. Right in chapter 1. But just rather than just reacting out of anger or frustration, he prayed and he fasted, for he was one who feared the Lord. He did his homework before making any requests of King Artaxerxes. And then once he gained permission to do something, he moved with courage towards the city, even though he encountered early opposition. His fear was not of man, it was of the Lord. He surveyed the walls before beginning the project. He placed his workers strategically where they might be motivated to serve. He was attentive to his workers' needs, as we saw last week. When he heard about their mistreatment of of countrymen to countrymen, it rightfully roused his anger. But he was a man who feared the Lord. And you remember, he didn't just let his anger spill out into unwise action, but he counseled with himself. He pondered. He brought his emotions into check and brought them before the Lord and then acted wisely. He himself lent to his countrymen, but he did so without personal gain or without inquiring any property because he feared the Lord. He didn't press his own rights or benefits, the benefits of his gubernatorial contract. He actually shared food from his table with those in need. He confronted falsehood and lies. He didn't give in to fear and intimidation to Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, and the Arabs and those around him. He discerned the false prophets. He was hardworking and ever praying bringing a hard project to completion and soliciting help along the way. He makes arrangements to protect the people. He enlists the help of others and empowers them to serve in good, uh, in good and meaningful ways. He's not a prima donna. And he guards the gate, both metaphorically and literally. Nehemiah is a good, godly man of integrity. And I gotta tell you, as I was reading, reading over this and thinking about all of the ways that he acted, with the fear of the Lord as his primary objective and what that unfolded in his life and in his leadership, I found myself saying, here is a leader to admire. Here is one who is fit to lead. If I can take a word out of our public debate right now. Here is a model of a man who is not perfect, but a man of integrity. And I just think, I want, I want to be a man like this. I wish I had such a man to vote for uh, in the upcoming election. Um, As we turn to the third part here, what I want to show you is that the contrast between these characters, the duplicity of Tobiah and the integrity of Nehemiah, is, I think, meant to prompt a question for us. It's meant to help us consider this important issue. How will Judah respond in this moment of truth? In coming home, in completing their tasks, and getting this great closure that they've been working for for a long time now, 
Will they fall back into a life of sin and shame and idolatry and duplicity? Or will they step forward to a life of integrity and devotion to the Lord? Or to say it another way, will they end up looking like Tobiah again? Or will they look like Nehemiah in his integrity? And what we find, the good news is this, in our third point, moving into chapter 8, that Israel returns wholeheartedly in devotion to the Lord. We'll start with verse 73 of chapter 7 and move into 8. The priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the musicians, and the temple servants, along with certain of the people and the rest of the Israelites, settled in their own towns. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which God which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon. There we go. There's a new paradigm for church. Daybreak till noon. What do you guys think? We just read to you the whole time. You guys don't look good. You don't look like you're embracing that. We'll keep going. As he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, men and women and others who could understand, and all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. A couple of things. First of all, what we find here, which maybe is not obvious to the everyday reader, is that this is a common ceremonial practice known as a Caesarean Treaty. Uh, in other words, what, what happened commonly at, at this particular time was when a conquering king came into a region and overtook it and then was accepting sort of these, uh, these new citizens or these vassal citizens, there was a practice that would, be, that would occur whereby the, citizen, the law would be read, the covenant would be read to them, the citizens would sort of go through a point of, of confession, and then in the end they would make a statement of loyalty and affirm the covenant. It was a way of saying, yes, you have conquered us, we are now subject to you. We will order our lives around your law. And so this is what happened socially, and it was common in the day, and, and this same kind of thing is happening here. It's not the first time we see it. In fact, the giving of the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai is the same, same kind of Caesarean treaty. God is giving his law. Here it is. The people make confession and say, yes, this is bearing on our life, and then they make a covenant. We will live this out. A Caesarean treaty there, and here they're doing it again, and it's a familiar custom in the same way that you and I would go to a wedding ceremony, and each wedding is a little bit different, especially in Alaska. (laughs) You know, there are some common features of, of a ceremony that we expect to see, and then there are some, you know, uniquenesses of each one, but we expect to see a certain rhythm of the ceremony and certain aspects happen in the same way this is true of a Caesarean treaty and what is being unfolded. The covenant is read. Confessions are made. Obedience is promised. What is sweet about it in this case is that it's Judah who takes the initiative. When we look at the giving of the law on Mount Sinai, it was God who took initiative. But in this case, it's Judah who says so. They're not a, they're not a conquered people here. They're a victorious people, but they're showing themselves to be a surrendered people to Yahweh. And so this is, I think, a very beautiful moment where the Lord's correction in their life, the destruction of the city and of the temple, deportation, exile, and now finally 
return and the rebuilding of the city comes to this very poignant moment, maybe the most beautiful moment really in all of the Old Testament of recommitment. It has come all the way full circle and they are stepping forward and saying, we want a covenant to you, Yahweh. We want to be yours. We want to be your people. We want to follow your laws and be devoted to you. Another thing that I think is sweet here is we find that they call for Ezra. So we're in the book of Nehemiah, but here's Ezra. You know, it's like a superhero movie. You know, they're all starting to bleed together these days, right? Well, here, here we have these two men who are contemporaries. They're co-workers, and we find one showing up in the story of the other. But what's fascinating is Ezra returned to Judah in 458 B.C. It's now 445 B.C. In other words, 13 years have passed. Ezra has been in the city for 13 years, faithfully ministering and teaching and serving the people. And we don't have any great stories of revival or anything like that until now. 13 years of steady faithfulness, preaching the word of God. And now, at this moment, the people say, come and read the word of our Lord to us. Um, as a preacher, well, I really like this story. Uh, what really quickens my heart is to see the appetite of the people of God for the word of God, to see their longing for it. And I, I get to say this to you, Bethel. This is sweet for me. One of the things I love so much about serving here is your appetite for the word of God. I know you demand that that is what is preached to you. I know that I would have trouble if I brought something other <laughs> to you or if anybody else did. And I want to tell you that it's not all that common anymore that a church would prioritize the authority of the word of God over anything else. And I appreciate that about you. It is my great privilege each week to come to my office and one of the first things I do to lay my Bible open for the next passage and say, it's game on for the next week. We're going to hear from the word of the Lord again. And to do that week in and week out and to know your appetite, I really appreciate that about you. And it's a, it's a real privilege to be able to serve uh, with you in that way. Um, let's move on to verse 4 here. Ezra, the teacher of the law, stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him on his right stood those folks, and on his left those folks. In verse 5, Ezra opened the book and all the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. Can I just pause and say, who was being elevated here? Was it the man or was it the word? It was the word. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. And they bowed down and they worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites, these folks here, instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest, and the teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people have been weeping as they listened to the words of the Lord. Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to the Lord. 
Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Isn't that sweet? They asked that the word would be brought to them in red. For hours they listened to it. They prepared for it by building the platform. We're told that they listened attentively. No sleepers in the back row. They're engaged. Some of you just woke up. (laughs) This is the preacher's dream. Not just that he would hear his own voice drone on and on, but that he would hear the word of the Lord carry over the people the revelation of God to see it desired, discussed, understood, cherished, responded to in rightful worship and obedience. That's the preacher's great desire and dream. And so this is a church service that just quickens my heart. Uh, It's sweet. Uh, Not only is it sweet to see them cherish the word and respond to it in repentance in some cases, but I love the, the positive command of Nehemiah. Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks. When was the last time a preacher gave you that application? Go and enjoy good things to eat and drink and give to those who don't have any. It's this last line that really gets my heart though where he says, do not grieve for the joy of the Lord is your strength. See, Ezra and Nehemiah want the people not just to be repentant for sin, but they want them to know the goodness of God. We want to repent of sin because it's less than. It's the shortcut. It's the inferior. It's the imposture. It's the thing that says I'm good but isn't. It's the thing that doesn't deliver. It's the thing that always disappoints. It's the thing that destroys and tears down and rips us up. And others feel it and we feel it. It's a lie. It's always a lie and it's never what it promises to be. That's the nature of sin. But the goodness of God is sweet. And it calls for our hearts and it brings us home. It brings us home to the one for whom we were made to enjoy the life that he intended for us. And this is the contrast that's there for us. Will we go back to this life of duplicity and sin and shame? Or will we go forward into full devotion and integrity for the Lord? That's the sweet life. That's what is there for us. I woke up this morning, or Tuesday morning this week, at four o'clock. Anybody else having this particular problem? I don't know if this is a 40-year-old problem. 4 a.m., I'm just, I'm laying in bed and I'm just churning on stuff. And I thought, oh, okay, I'm going to get up. And usually the best thing I can do when that happens is I go down and I sit in my chair next to the wood stove and I open my Bible and I start reading through. And I was reading over the passage again that I had already read over and I had this moment of discovery, this word, this phrase, the joy of the Lord is your strength. And I just kind of sat there and let that wash over me. And to be honest with you, I'm sitting there. My eyes are welling up with tears and I'm getting emotional about it. And I'm sitting here thinking, how ironic. It says the joy of the Lord is your strength and I'm weeping. So I had to laugh at myself a little bit. The thing is, we all, all of us carry burdens with us. And some of you are in a real time of burden right now. There's one's personal health a really shameful election, rising health care costs, taxes upon taxes, home maintenance in Fairbanks, Alaska. That's not for the faint of heart. Can I get an amen to that? 
strain with friends, strained relationships, and strange relationships at that. We have issues at work we have to battle through. We have struggles of those that we love that we walk out along with them and they affect us. We carry their burden with them. We wake up early and it's dark. We go to work, it's still dark. We go home, it's dark. It's cold. And we can get to these points in life where we feel like we're just circling the drain, waiting for the Lord to come back. But that's not what the life the Lord has for us. He reminds us it is the joy of the Lord that is our strength. So we're told that we are to lift our eyes, we're to lift our gaze above the temporal issues that we face, that we all face every day, and the way that they burden us and the way that we hold them. We're to lift our eyes above them and we're to say that I know the joy of what it is to be rightly related to the Father for those of us in the New Testament age because of Jesus Christ. We know the joy and the peace of life that he brings. And that holds us in a way that quite frankly, those who don't have the joy of the Lord don't know. And we should cherish it and we should long that others would have it. The psalmist says in chapter 34, verses eight through 11, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you, his holy people. For those who fear him lack nothing. Lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, my children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. The joy of the Lord is our strength. Don't forget that. We see the people go on. Not only have they returned in wholehearted devotion, they took the initiative, they celebrated because of the joy they had in the Lord and now we see they continue to discover uh, they continue to discover the goodness of God. They move on. I'm going to skip the point. Excuse me. Let me go back to the celebration. Don't want to miss the celebration. Look at me in verse 11. The Levites cal- uh, calmed all the people saying, Be still, for this is a holy day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink and to send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. Uh, I think there are way too many people that think to be a part of the family of God, to come into the Christian faith, to devote themselves to the Lord is going to be a surrender of things that are good and enjoyable. And that is not at all what we find in the scriptures. In fact, Ecclesiastes commands us in 8.15, commands us to the enjoyment of life. Solomon, the wisest man to ever live, says, I command the enjoyment of life because there's nothing better for a person under the sun to eat and drink and be glad than joy will accompany them in their toil all the days of the life that God has given them under the sun. Gary Thomas, a very good Christian writer, has said this. He says, if we deny ourselves the wholesome pleasures in life, we make ourselves vulnerable to the illicit ones. And I love that. St. Augustine has said, God, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. Bernard of Clairvaux said, from the best bliss the world imparts, we turn again unfilled to thee. Um, And so I love that these people 
celebrated the joy of the Lord. Finally, they continue to discover. uh, Verse 13. On the second day of the month, the heads of the families, along with the priests and the Levites, gather around Ezra, the teacher, to give attention to the words of the law. And they found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded through Moses, that the Israelites were to live in temporary shelters during the festival of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim this word and spread it throughout their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out into the hill country and bring back branches from olive and wild olive trees and from myrtles, palms, and shade trees to make temporary shelters as it is written. So the people went out and brought back branches and built themselves temporary shelters on their own roofs in their courtyards, in the courts of the house of God, in the square by the water gate and by the one and, and the one by the gate of Ephraim. The whole company that had returned from exile built temporary shelters and lived in them. From the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day, the Israelites had not celebrated it like this. And their joy was very great. Day after day, from the first day to the last, Ezra read from the book of the law of God. They celebrated the festival for seven days, and on the eighth day, in accordance with the regulation, there was an assembly. One of my favorite things as your, as your pastor to hear from you guys is when you come to me and you say, I read this in the scriptures and it was like I saw it for the first time. This is what I'm discovering. This is what God is showing me. I, and as much as I love to preach the word to you, I love to hear the word of God alive in you and to hear you discover it and enjoy that particular process. And we have a moment here where Judah does the same thing. They discover something they had missed. This particular festival, known as the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths, was meant to commemorate their exodus out of Egypt and the way that God had carried them and they stayed in these little tents as they traveled through the wilderness and the way that God had tabernacled among them, tented with them. He was with them through this particular journey. It had gone out of practice. They forgot to celebrate it. And so this particular discovery is like finding a holiday. It is finding a holiday. Imagine one day we're here preaching and we discover Christmas and we say, we've been missing this season. We haven't been rightfully celebrating. And, 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 and if we were to simply impose this new holiday, you all be like, this is awesome. <laughs> Especially my wife, who's part elf. Let me tell you, she really is. We've been missing this great celebration for like years. And now we have this thing to celebrate and commemorate. And they discover this and they get on with this and it's rich for them. They are growing in the grace and the knowledge of their God. I was having coffee with a dear friend this week and we were talking about kind of this full circle moment and all of the goodness that is here. And it's kind of like, wow, really do you get to the end of a passage in the scriptures and it's just kind of all good. You know, you expect the credits to roll and someone to write off in the sunset. And this is great. That doesn't always happen. And so he asked me the question, how long does this last? And the reply was, well, (laughs) unfortunately not that long. Next week, the title of the message is going to be Relapse, just to give you a hint. (laughs) Unbelievably, after all of this goodness, yet again, the temptation comes. And some of them, some of them, take the bait. They take the life of duplicity. They take the life of Tobiah. They engage in again of all things, intermarriage and other things. Uh, But what I want to say is this in closing. Growing in the grace and the knowledge of our God is not a perfectly linear process. 
we don't, while we keep heading that direction, it's not a straight line. It's a, it's a bumpy stock market-ish kind of, kind of line. And just as any wise and savvy investor knows, that is during some of those great plummets, when with the right investment, we can yield some of the greatest rewards. I don't know where you are with the Lord right now. I don't know what's in front of you. But I suspect every day, two options present themselves. Will I live a life in the fear of man? A life of duplicity? Will I give in to sin and temptation? Will I embrace the old? Or will I step forward in a life of integrity, driven by the fear of the Lord, setting him first and foremost in front of me? There is the sweetness of life. The scriptures affirm it. Let's pray. Our God, you do not call us to what is easy. You call us to what is hard, a life of obedience. But that life of obedience is good. As Jesus, our teacher, whom we follow, has taught us, it is the thief who comes to steal and kill and destroy. But I come that you might have life and have it to the full. Give us courage, Lord, to live lives that are hard in the moment, but fulfilling in the long run. We love you and we thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.